0: The last couple of weeks, we have gotten to focus a little bit on baptism, that sacrament of God's grace to us, a sacrament that we noted calls us to know our victory uh, in Christ, this victory that He's achieved over the cosmic powers, and for us to know our calling, to live out our baptism within this world through living a cruciform life, a life that is shaped by the cross where we choose to suffer rather than choose to sin to avoid the suffering. The sacraments are so precious to us. We got to uh, receive communion last week and they are precious to us because we know that these are tangible signs and seals through which God gives himself to us not just teaching us something. He's giving himself to us. His presence is there in those sacraments as they are received by faith. Sometimes what we forget is that the Word also has a sacramental presence to it as God gives himself to us through what we hear. Now, we just sang and asked the Lord to come to us. And I chose to sing it at that point because we are now going to have him come to us in his word. And so receive the reading of his word for what it is. This is God speaking to us, his people. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. As one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as you have given yourself to us in this liturgy, as you have given yourself to us in this word, give us eyes to see and ears to listen. And Lord, help us to truly embrace what is here, not only the parts that we like, not only the parts that remind us of what we already know, but speak to us afresh. And may your spirit both convict and empower us in new ways to live out our identity as your people. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, this would be, I would imagine, in terms of my leading in worship, one of the first years that I actually feel comfortable using the word Advent. For years, I struggled with how to understand this concept of Advent, Advent especially coming from the OPC and some of the, the more stringent side of confessional reform theology. Does the regulative principle allow for this concept of Advent? And I realized what I was struggling with was the way that I had always heard and read about what Advent is. Because for me growing up, I did not grow up Reformed. I grew up in a broad evangelical tradition. We didn't use these words. And when I heard them, they were often used to describe what the Catholics do or what the high church does, what these other groups do. And as I looked into it and saw the way that they went about this, I was not comfortable. Because in these other traditions, typically what they are doing with Advent is they are trying to act as if Christ hasn't come. And they use the time of Advent as a time of repentance. They use it as a time in which they try to reimagine themselves living in darkness so that they get really excited about the coming of the light, which they see coming on Christmas Day. Beloved, the Bible does not allow us to approach Jesus Christ in that way. In fact, the New Testament The burden of the New Testament is to make sure that we know that Messiah has come. That God in flesh has broken into history and has forever changed history. And with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has forever changed the structure of reality. The world is different because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. A new era within God's redemptive program has come near, we are told. But when you remember that Advent is also an anticipation of that second coming of Jesus Christ. And when you hold these two advents together, it is extremely appropriate in my humble, well, not so humble opinion nowadays. It is extremely appropriate to have a time where we reflect not only on this miracle of God coming in flesh, but where we really dig down into this anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ in such a way that the second coming isn't just something we talk about if we want to talk about the weird eschatological views that are out there. But where the second coming of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the present era that exists within redemptive history in which you and I are citizens. We live between the two advents of Christ. And it is the first advent that defines us, and it is the second advent as the reality of the second advent already exists because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Peter's word words the end of all things has occurred it is appropriate within god's providence that the end of all things is at hand is the opening phrase of a sermon preached in the opening sunday of advent because this is exactly what peter is referring to he's not simply referring to chronology Many in the early church understood it that way. Many of them thought, oh, well, Jesus is coming tomorrow. And there is a sense in which the New Testament tells us, live with that anticipation. But what Peter is also referring to here is that we have now entered into the final stage of God's redemptive program. The end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? That means there is nothing further for God to do other than for Him to be true to His promises, for Him to rescue all of the elect from darkness, and for His Son to return to, in, to inaugurate the fulfillment of everything that started when Jesus Christ was born in flesh. Jesus Himself said, Because I am here, the kingdom of God has come near. So we live between these two advents of Jesus Christ, where both advents define who we are and how we are to live, how we are to express this identity within this world while we do exactly what Advent encourages us to remember that we should be doing and that is waiting but waiting with the expectant hope that we because we have been born again in Jesus Christ are indeed strangers and exiles pilgrims in aliens within this world. And so we are to wait. Jesus Christ, we are told in 318 was put to death in the flesh. 318 Christ was made alive in the spirit. It doesn't say in a spirit, it's in the spirit. And as I said back then, that is the inauguration of the new creation because Jesus, we know, was raised to a body. His enfleshing did not only happen in the first advent. His enfleshing has continued and will continue for eternity. So that when he comes in his second advent, he will be there bodily. We will see him. We, we can hear him. We will feel him. As Revelation tells us, he will wipe away the tears from our cheeks. Christ was raised to his new creation body because the new creation began. It is the sphere of existence of the Spirit. And he puts, 321, this sign and seal the sign and seal of our participation in his life, our participation in the new creation, he puts this sign and seal to us in our baptism, a baptism that calls us to recognize his victory over the cosmic powers and our call to cruciform devotion. And Christ 322 has been exalted to the heavenly throne until his enemies are made his footstool. This is what Advent is all about. He has come. He is coming again. And he came, we are told, in such a way that he himself was described as a heavenly pilgrim king. He left his father's home above. We sang that just moments ago. He left and he came and he sojourned in this world in flesh. He himself was a pilgrim and he came incognito, right? He was born in a manger. He was born as one who had willingly given up his glory for a time in order to come and to be a servant we are told, even to the point of death. But Jesus worked miracles. He, he was a miracle, but he also worked miracles. And he did so in or, because he was embodying and he was revealing his homeland. He is the king over all the universe. He is the king over all creation. He is the one, he is the word that was at the beginning of creation that through the word brought things out of nothing into existence. This is the king who came as a baby. This is the king who he came, hiding his glory. This is the king who came and he took up residence with those who would not have been considered the most beautiful or the most powerful or the most influential. They were not the most successful. They were ordinary. They were often forgotten, not focused on. He revealed and he embodied his homeland in the working of his providence over creation at his own will. This is amazing. And in coming, in revealing and embodying his homeland, he has given his people the gifts of that homeland, as Peter has reminded us, or I'm sorry, as Paul reminds us, right, that in Christ we have received all of the blessings of the spiritual places. As Peter says, that we have been born again to a living hope where we are now the recipients of the treasures of Christ, where those treasures are protected for us and we are protected for them. He is the heavenly pilgrim. He came incognito, but he revealed and embodied his homeland and he gave the gifts of his homeland so that his people who have become citizens of his homeland might taste of that homeland even before we ever get there. This is our savior. And this is what Advent is. And what Peter has been arguing throughout this letter is like our Savior, because we have a shared life in Him, we, like Him, are now sojourners, exiles, aliens, pilgrims, strangers. That's our identity. And in the first chapter and a half... That's what he presses upon us over and over and over and over. Here is your new identity. Why? So that you will live out, so that you will reveal that you will embody your homeland in this foreign land in which you live just like your Savior did. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We do this waiting for the fullness of what we already possess. And so we are to conduct ourselves as foreigners who wish to maintain their identity of origin. What it means for us to be exiles is that we live in a world that is not our home, but we live in a world that is not our home in a way that we reflect our true home. We don't take on the culture. We don't take on the values. We don't take on the stuff of the world in which we live. We manifest the stuff of our world to this world. We conduct ourselves as foreigners who show forth the beauty and excellence of our home culture values and practices. We live in a way that highlights the best of our home, beloved in Christ As strangers and aliens, we have become ambassadors of our homeland. And from the middle of chapter 2 until this week, his focus has been on living as ambassadors of our homeland to those who are not fellow citizens of our homeland. But now he transitions. And he begins to discuss how we live as ambassadors of our homeland to our fellow citizens of that homeland. What he has said up to this point has been said for those outside the church. What he is saying now is how we relate to those within the church. How are we strangers, aliens, pilgrims? How do we do this with one another within the church? That is what he now transitions to discuss. And what he does, once again, is he calls us to maintain the identity of our homeland by providing a taste of that homeland to one another. Beloved, we are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are wearied by the travel that we are enduring as those who are outside our homeland. And we need strength. We need encouragement. We need to be nurtured. We need to be cultivated And God, in his grace, does this as we, one another, each other. And so how do we embody, how do we reveal the beauty of our homeland to one another? He gives us four specific things that are an expression of Jesus Christ himself, that we do towards one another. We have received gifts from our king and we are to share those gifts with one another. And there are four basic things that he gives us. These, this is not exhaustive, but these four things as they connect together are the thing that we need to embrace as God's people that we do for one another we live in the final stage of god's redemptive program peter tells us and he says because of this we are to have heavenly thinking right what it means for us to be in this final stage is that we have already entered into the new creation in jesus christ we are part of the heavenlies in Jesus Christ. And so our thinking is to be heavenly in order that we will pray. He calls us to be self-controlled. He calls us to be sober-minded. He's talking about right thinking. He's talking about rightly understanding the world as it now exists because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's calling you, he's calling me to understand the world as we live in it from the perspective of God. In the supplemental studies, I've talked a lot about how Peter is part of that apocalyptic literature tradition. And what apocalyptic literature was, was doing was apocalypse. It means revelation, right? The book of Revelation at the end is an apocalyptic piece of literature because it's revealing and it's unveiling reality from God's perspective where God pulls back the curtain and allows you to look through to see what he sees and to see it from who he is and his plans for it and what he is doing. We are told here that we are to be self-controlled, sober-minded. We are to think rightly from God's perspective about our existence within this world as those living between the two advents of Christ so that we will remember that we need to pray and that we will know how to pray. Notice that this is used in contrast to what he says in verse 2 and verse 3. Remember from there, he uh, he said there that we um, are no longer to live the rest of the time in the flesh according to human passions. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. This is a way of describing a people who are not self-controlled, who are not sober-minded. They are teetering and they are tottering because of being overwhelmed by the passions of the flesh. And beloved, you and I can still, in Christ, be drawn into that drunkenness. And look, for us, our sensuality, Our passions may not be the obvious sins that are here, but make no mistake, you and I bring our preferences into the church. We manifest the flesh. We manifest the realities of the culture of this world and not our true world when we do that when we bring our preferences about what church should be, what it should look like. This, we are just in danger of this as anyone, and that is why we need to live sober-mindedly so that we can pray. We need to be clear-minded with the clearness of the heavenlies, not the drunkenness of the world. Which means also that we don't live fatalistically, in a hostile world as exiles who are to embrace and embody the hope of Jesus Christ. It is difficult. Peter has been emphasizing that to us, and it, become very, it can become very easy for us to become fatalistic. But we remain realistic because we see and experience our situations through Christ's perspective. Which means our prayers are not to be based on daydreams and unreality. Our prayers are not to be the prayers of surprised desperation. But a prayer that calls upon and submits to God in the light of reality seen from God's perspective. And thus obtaining the power and guidance in the situation no matter how difficult or dire things seem to be. Prayer is a chief resource for embodying our homeland to one another for one another. And the more time you spend in the world in conjunction to the less time that you spend in prayer with one another, the more vulnerable you are making yourself unnecessarily. we have a Wednesday evening, yes, virtual, but a Wednesday evening prayer time where we can see each other's faces, where we can hear each other's voices, where we can pray with and for one another safely during this time of the coronavirus. And I'm not telling you that if you're not participating, you're in sin, But what I will tell you is if you are voluntarily not participating, you are setting yourself up and you are neglecting a means of grace that God has given you in order to help you remain sober, in order to help you make sure that your values are remaining centered on the kingdom of God and not values that are getting mixed with the pleasures of this world. Look, how easy is it for us to get swept up into our vocations? How easy is it for us to get swept up into looking for some kind of personal glory through our performance, whether it is in our jobs, whether it's in school, whether it's how we are as a mother or how we are as a grandfather? There are so many things that we can engage in that are good things to engage in, but sometimes we forget to engage in them as those who are citizens of the heavenlies, And then we use these things in order to achieve or to receive some kind of earthly benefit. Beloved prayer and praying together, praying with one another is one of the chief blessings that God It's one of the chief resources that God, it's one of the chief gifts that God gives us to help us refuse the drunkenness of this world. We live in the final stage of God's redemptive program which provides us the right mental state that rightly apprehends our situation so that prayers can take their proper place in the life of the church. Two, heavenly love. We are to give ourselves to heavenly loving in order to preserve the church. The love that he talks about here is persistent, he says it covers a multitude of sins. Many believe that he is borrowing from Proverbs ten twelve as he is unfolding this within the life of the New Testament church. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now within Proverbs, within the way that the poetry is written, love covers all offenses is set in antithetic parallelism to hatred stirs up strife. What does that mean? It means this. If you want to understand what what is love that covers a multitude of sins, what is love that covers all offenses, it's not simply talking about forgiveness. What it's talking about is something that is the opposite of self-centered pushing for one's own preferences that stirs up strife. James reminds us, Why do we hate? Why do we kill? Because we want, but we do not have. In the church, because we are citizens of the heavenly places, our love is to be an enduring love that de-escalates the effects of sin within the body of Christ. It means this. It means when someone does do something that is a manifestation of their self-centeredness and when someone may sin against you, it means this, that you don't act in response on the basis of hard feelings and wrongdoing. Someone does something against you, you ignore it, is what it says. You extinguish it. This is a forbearance that does not let wrongs done within the Christian community come to their fullest and most pernicious or destructive expression. It means you don't respond in like kind. You see, sin, as it still exists, not only within you as an individual, but within us as a body of Christ, sin, when it is not dealt with well becomes this fuel of ongoing cycles of evil, deceit, hypocrisies, jealousies, backbiting. And how do you stop these cycles? You don't participate. You let love cover a multitude of sins. And you do that, he says here, in a enduring fashion, which means you do it over, and you do it over, and you do it over, and you do it over. This doesn't mean, by the way, that there is no place for church discipline. This doesn't mean that there is no place for going to your brother or going to your sister and saying, hey, I see that you're, you know, kind of drowning in sin here. What can I do to help? And so it doesn't mean that we don't actually recognize that there is sin. And it doesn't mean we don't deal with the sin. But when we do, we make sure that it is not under the guise of retribution. And for the session, for the elders who have the authority of Jesus Christ to exercise the keys of his kingdom on his behalf to his people, if there is any temptation that we have, it is to use our authority in retribution rather than typically to use our authority to cover sin and to help someone else get out of it. I don't know how many stories I have heard about sessions wielding their authority with a heavy hand unnecessarily when a loving word would have accomplished so much more. The love that we are to endure with is a forbearing love that stops the cycle of sin by not participating in it so that you, in the freedom that you have in Christ, can help the person who is in it. Thinking rightly and praying in a manner consistent with God's redemptive program enables a love for one another that persists even when one is hurt by wrongs within the community. Third, we're to give ourselves to heavenly hospitality without complaining. Now, how many of you, when you heard that, thought immediately to the Israelites in the desert? right? We've got the image of sojourners, the image of pilgrims. I said from chapter one that the image specifically that Peter is borrowing from is the people who on the night, before the, uh, the night of the Passover, they have their staff, they have their loins girded, they're ready to go out into the wilderness and follow Yahweh wherever he takes them. And as he does and he conquers their enemies and as he shows an amazing hospitality in feeding them with heavenly bread, what do they do? Oh, heavenly bread again. The people of God, when you read Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, when you read through that, what you will read over and over is one of the primary characteristics of the people of God during that time period is that they were a bunch of complainers. And and Paul tells us, as we read from last week in 1 Corinthians 10, that we're to learn from their mistakes so that we don't follow them in that pattern of complaining because that pattern of complaining sets one up to reject God. We are to use our homes for ministry, Peter tells us. And look, think about what he has already said. Within a small community where Christians are being targeted, What he says is, make yourself an even bigger target by having people from the church over. This is not being said in our culture right now. Whereas we'd love in the South to have people over and to have a good meal and to enjoy these things. That is not what he's talking about. He is saying, look, make yourself an even bigger target by courageously inviting one another so that you guys can worship together. Remember, they didn't have a church building like we do. They had to worship in someone's home. And so someone had to be willing to open that home and make themselves a target by having other Christians there. And look, in the way that many of them lived at that time, they didn't have individual homes. They lived in these apartment buildings, basically. So guess who knew when you had someone over? Everybody in your apartment building knew. Guess who knew when they heard you singing about Christos? Everybody. Who knew when someone was proclaiming Christ to his people in that setting? Everyone knew. The very people who were the uh, ones bringing persecution, they are told, do this with one another without complaining makes us hopefully maybe rethink the way some of us have been complaining through coronavirus I was complaining just right before the service why can't there be more people here it's Advent and it's fun and it's celebratory oh that's right because there's a virus Oh well, woe is me. I engaged in it after reflecting on the text all week. We can so easily get drawn into complaining. But we are to do this, open our homes, use them for ministry. Now, within our church, hopefully as the session continues to discuss and as we start to open things back up, this you know will mean things like not only Sunday school restarting, but we're hoping to also look at small groups. But there is a, a one another fellowship that we are called to engage in without complaining, which also means this, that when we engage in this hospitality, it is not hospitality that is only offered to those whom we like in the church. It doesn't mean that we, yes, open up our homes to those who like the same movies or who like the same music or who uh, are in the same um, Uh, class, right? Look, we have white collar, we have blue collar. That is a reality within our culture. How easy would it be to have the other white collar people over, to have the other blue collar people over because it's kind of uncomfortable when the two are mixing together. One of the things that was always fun for me as a kid because my dad was an officer in the Marine Corps was watching the way the non-military people responded to my dad, especially like in a small group setting, And watching the other Marines, who were of a lower rank, respond to my dad in a small group uh, situation. It was hilarious. Especially the real young guys, the real young enlisted guys. They didn't know what to do with themselves. They didn't know if they should be saluting at small group or supposed to stand in attention when he's there. It was so awkward and hilarious to me as a kid. And he was so gracious and he would let them know, hey, when we're here... You know, we're we're brothers in Christ. But it's so easy to think that when we open up our homes for ministry that we do so with those whom it's easy to do it with. Beloved, the sole condition of the fellowship in the ministry that we have in the opening of our homes is this. Do you have a shared life in Jesus Christ? Even if they're of a different class, even if they're of a different vocation, even if they have different interests, even if they're from a different part of the country, even if they're from a different part of the world. Are we citizens of the heavenly places? Well, that is the sole condition upon which this fellowship is to be based. And so open your home, but be careful not to only open it to those who it's fun. Because look, some of us are difficult. And if you're looking around the room and you're not quite sure who the difficult one is, (laughs) when we rightly apprehend reality and how it is centered on prayer and we're able to break the cycles of wrongs in the church, one can pursue everyone equally within the church with equal generosity that reflects our homeland and our shared future together. Fourth, we are to give ourselves to heavenly service from a diversity of gifts. One other thing, by the way, about hospitality, I always say this to my southern ladies. This doesn't mean that to have someone over, you have to break out great-grandmother's china and have doilies and have name tags and have everything situated and planned out. It means if you have a loaf of bread and that's all you have, you have someone over and y'all eat bread together. All right? This doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be complicated. Is it fun to do all that? Absolutely. But when you do all that, unless you are a special person, it actually becomes more what? It becomes more difficult. It becomes more laborious. It becomes part of, well, are they going to judge me if I don't do this? Or are they going to judge me if I do do this? What, what ends up happening? You end up reflecting the culture in which we live that we're supposed to be rescuing each other from for a, for a moment within this world. Let your shared life in Jesus Christ be the condition on which you open up your home in order that your fellow travelers can come in and together You guys can reminisce and encourage each other according to your identities in the heavenly places so that we can go back out. Last, we give ourselves to heavenly service from a diversity of of gifts. Notice here he says they're, they're grace gifts and they are varied. This time of year, how often do we hear, oh, it's better to give than receive. Who really believes that? Now look, I know some of you do. Some of you weird people out there are givers, and that's awesome. But it's better to give than receive is not Christian. Have you ever thought about that? During a time and a season of giving gifts, it is not Christian to say it's better to give than to get. It is Christian to say it is best to give from what you have received. That's Christian because Jesus Christ has shared with us all the gifts of the heavenly places. And we are told right here why. We are told that he has given us these gifts so that we will turn and give them to others. That we will share our gifts with others. Our time, our treasure, our talents are to be given to and for one another. The spiritual gifts that the Spirit graces us with, whatever yours may be, is a gift that is yours, not for you to get recognition in the church for for what you do, but for you to give to the church. You are ambassadors to one another. And what that means is your gifts are varied. They look different from one another. And that's beautiful because that's what we need. One person doesn't have them all other than Jesus. Jesus. And so Jesus shares all that he has with all of us together as the corporate body. When we rightly apprehend reality, are centered on prayer, and are able to break the cycle of wrongs, one can pursue with all generosity what reflects our homeland and our shared future and empowers us to speak words that are consistent with God's life in us And serve others with a strength that only comes from him. How are you going to deal with that difficult person in your home? Not through your flesh, not through some strength within yourself. It's from the strength that God provides. How do I know that? Well, God puts up with you. And he puts up with me. And he does so with a smile because he loves us. And his grace is what is allowing that. And we are told that he gives us this grace to exercise towards one another. What better way for you to be reminded that it's not because of your perfection that you are loved than to be in a group where everyone doesn't fit in perfectly, and yet there is that presentation of love to one another a love that can only come from the shared citizenship we have in the heavenly places. All of this, we are told, is done for the purpose of a God-centered vision of life. Where God, because he longs to glorify himself by saving a people for his name's sake. Leads us to receive these things from Him so that we can give them to one another. And when we do this, when we do these four things, even imperfectly with one another, beloved, we are magnifying the glory that belongs to our eternal God. We taste of that glory. And we reflect that glory to one another. And we are told here that this is the purpose for why we do this with one another. This is the purpose why God has done it with us. And this is the purpose for what, why God gives it to us to give to one another. Do you see this? God has a commitment to himself, and that commitment is that he is going to glorify himself over all the earth. And part of him doing that is saving a people, sharing his life, sharing his love, sharing his mission. God has a commitment to himself. He has a commitment to us, and our commitment to one another comes from that. Because think about it. Those to whom Peter is writing, if feathers get ruffled, can they just go down to the church down the block? No. There isn't another church down the block. This is it. And beloved, one of the ways that the culture of this world will manifest itself in American Christians is in that very problem. Things get difficult, I don't like it, so I'll go somewhere else where it's easier. That is the ethics of hell. But we have been called to embody the ethics of the heavenlies. Beloved, we don't have to do that because we are empowered with everything that we need to earnestly love one another. And so this Advent season, as we cultivate afresh hearts and minds and wills that are waiting for the second Advent of Jesus Christ, as we are preparing the way, these four things are what we do to prepare that way with one another, for one another, to the glory of our eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to us that you love us so well, and that you have chosen to glorify yourself not only in saving us, but in gracing us with everything that we need to embody you to one another. And so just as our Savior, as the heavenly pilgrim came, and he revealed the heavenlies, and he embodied the heavenlies, Lord, as those who are pilgrims in him, help us to do this with one another. And help us to find ways to do it creatively during the pandemic. Because, Lord, even in a time like this where we absolutely need to be safe, we absolutely need to be reaching out to one another. And so bless us during this Advent season, Lord, to indeed refresh our hearts and minds on the second coming of Jesus Christ from the perspective that his first coming has already introduced us to the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, as we sang earlier, sometimes it is sad here and sometimes it feels lonely here. And so fill us with the realities of the heavenlies now so that we might continue to press forward as your pilgrims, having our thirst quenched and having our hunger taken care of by that which you provide us from heaven that is offered to us as one another we reach out and we share that varied grace with which you have gifted us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.